Today's podcast delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when sending on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and I'm here again with David Scott. Great to be here, Will. And our guest on the show this week is Michael McCarthy, Chief Market Strategist at CMC Markets. Great to have you on the show, Michael. Thanks very much, Colgo. It's my virgin podcast. Fantastic. Did you get through the, uh, the Brexit chaos uh, okay? Okay, mate. I understand that uh, for the general population and for investors, that sort of day is very scary. For a trader, it's one of the greatest days I've seen in 33 years of trading. Fantastic. Look, um, I think oh, uh, certainly the last episode of the um, of the podcast, um, and in fact, all the conversations this week. You know, people have been looking um, overseas to you know um, to to the events that have been happening in Europe. There's been a lot of consideration about you know how that might impact um, the future of Australia's trade relationships and um, the and political relationships between major strategic powers around the world. Um, but uh, there is something very important happening uh, here in Australia on Saturday, and that is uh, we have our own exercise in democracy um, when Australians roll out for a sausage roll and a vote. There is a general sense that the Labour campaign has sort of weakened. There's a bit of talk about Bill Shorten's uh, leadership um, over over the last 48 hours. Um, there's talk that maybe they think they can get 10 seats. They need 19 um, to 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 be able to govern in their own right. We still don't know uh, what's going to happen. Um, and I thought today, uh, with this podcast, with the with the the vote coming up, good time to. Um, Get out of the weeds of the campaign, the day-to-day coverage, and have a look at the economic context in which Australians are going to be voting on Saturday. Because Malcolm Turnbull, when he uh, publicly declared that he was going to have a crack at Tony Abbott last September, he said it was all about providing economic confidence. Uh, he said that um, you know uh, consumers needed more confidence, business, businesses needed more confidence. And this was something that the cabinet had heard, um, the Abbott cabinet had heard at the start of um, uh, 2015. Um, John Fraser and Glenn Stevens apparently briefed the cabinet and said, look, political instability uh, is unhelpful uh, and um, policy uh, uncertainty is unhelpful. So Turnbull has made this his uh, raison d'etre as, uh, as a leader. Um, and I thought we might start by looking at um, at where confidence is at. Over the last couple of months, Michael, um, uh, CMC has been running an election sentiment indicator um, that has tracked um, the uh, performance of the share market. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about how that has performed and, and how it has worked? The election sentiment index is an attempt to explain the impact of politics on the market. Essentially, it's generated by looking at the performance of the Australian share market and then stripping out other factors such as international share, share market sentiment, stripping out the effect of commodity prices on Australian shares, adjusting for the relatively small size of the Australian economy in the globe, and a number of other factors. And in taking those out, we get a reading on the sentiment uh, that's being expressed in the market. Now, no indicator's perfect, but in taking out those factors using international benchmarks, we do get some idea of the impact of this long political campaign on investors here in Australia. 
And how, um, what have the results been? Um, I think I saw it earlier on uh, in the campaign in, uh, in May. It, was, um, it took a big dive. It certainly did. Well, initially, it spiked. It went higher. When uh, the Governor-General declared the election, the first trading day after, we saw a straight upward move for the election sentiment index, suggesting that uh, investors have long awaited uh, this change in government. A little certainty about the timetable aided local investor sentiment. And then slowly the reality set in. Unfortunately, yes. And while we've had ups and downs, and we might talk about some of those, what is very clear is the overall trend here is downward. The impact of the campaign has weighed on investor sentiment. And even allowing for the disruption we've seen from all those global events, it's clear that the Australian political cycle is weighing on investor sentiment right now. How would you explain it? Can you offer any explanations for it? Like just on the, is it the policy side? Is it a confidence thing? One of the clear things about, well, first of all, we should say any time there's very little political news coming through, the sentiment moves higher. So <laughs> that tells us as far as the market concerned, no political news is good news. But uh, I think the other factor here is as the polls have moved closer and closer, suggesting that we're likely to see a continuation of the weak executive government, that is the hung parliament, sentiment has declined. And that's what investors are concerned about. The broad investment community knows that Australia needs reform. It's been nine years since any government has had a mandate, a real mandate, to implement their reform agenda. And without that reform, the Australian economy is slipping backwards. We need reform. That means we need strong government. And it's clear that investors have reacted very badly to the indications we're getting from the polls that we're heading towards another hung parliament. Yeah, or at least a, a situation where maybe the coalition... Um, has a majority in the lower house, but the, the Senate, how the Senate is going to uh, be composed uh, when we've got this double dissolution, the quotas are lower for entry into the Senate, um, that is very cloudy. Um, it certainly is. And the rise particularly of the small uh, parties and the independents is a real concern for the market. Um, Market people, or those who follow it professionally, tend to look to the numbers to get a, a gauge on what is going on. And so I turn to the uh, betting websites and have a look through by, for their seat-by-seat -seat analysis. It's always proved more accurate than the polls. And looking at that analysis, it shows that not only uh, do groups like Greens look like increasing their representation, but Nick Xenophon's team could also uh, grab up to three Senate seats. We could see the bookies at this stage are rating Pauline Hanson a reasonable chance to get a Senate seat in Queensland. Now, all of that might be interesting to their supporters, but it's certainly bad news uh, from the point of view of getting an agenda, a government agenda through the Senate. Because I think one of the things, um, you know, it, in markets and um, among economists, there's often a fairly dismissive attitude to the impact that um, general day-to-day -day politics um, has on the economy, right? Um, particularly uh, with Australia's economy, um, you know, small, mid-sized, um, small to mid-sized open economy, very heavily reliant on um, exports, uh, and you know when you, which is about demand from overseas, right? Which politicians here in Australia can't do anything about. Now, um, there can be this dismissive attitude to, well, look, if you change that, you're not going to really uh, move the dial very much on the economy. But I think. What happened in the UK and the way we've seen uh, GDP for the Eurozone revised down, GDP for um, the world's fifth largest economy in Britain getting um, lopped off by major investment banks, Barclays thinks there's going to be a recession, um, even though it might only last three quarters or so. Um, but that has shown, I think, that political, like, 
in the most astonishing way possible that political uncertainty can really have an impact on the economy. Um, now, it might be much harder to measure at a domestic level and, you know, we're, when you've got uncertainty around policy reform here in Australia. Um, but I think it has shown that um, if you need an example of where politics and political uncertainty can be damaging, there you have it. Absolutely. And, and you don't just have to take my word for it. We turn to authorities like um, RBA Governor Glenn Stevens, whose solution to the problems of the Australian economy are, are put quite simply in terms of unleashing animal spirits. Now, there are a lot of ingredients that go into creating the right environment, and government does have an important role to play in that. I, referring to your earlier point, there's, it's no wonder investors are cynical about governments and the role that they play in the economy. Uh, governments tend to overstate the impact that they have on the economy when things are going well, at least. And so th that cynicism can be... And when well it's going there. wrong, it's China's fault. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's anyone else's fault doesn't matter anyone else nonetheless that overreach by politicians does lead to cynicism but that shouldn't uh, make us lose sight of the fact that the structure the economic structure put in place by the government has a very important role to play and that instability is weighing on those animal spirits that need to be unleashed to get growth going to get unemployment down to get all the good things that we want out of our economy so we'll look at some of the specific policy measures uh, in a second. But David, um, you obviously follow um, the um, the momentum in the the economy and, co and measures like confidence very very carefully. Um, Malcolm Turnbull is leading the coalition uh, to the election with the um, economy overall in pretty good shape. Uh, everything considered, isn't he? He is, but uh, I really sort of question how much of that's actually to do with politics and uh, not other factors. Uh, one thing that I'm feel personally from uh, the years since the global financial crisis is that Australians, whether it's households or businesses, have learnt to go and deal with uncertainty when it comes to politics. No fractured government, uh, nothing being able to get passed through the Senate. That's just part and part of the uh, you know, what we've learned to go and deal with. Um, in terms of what we've seen recently in a lot of the, uh, the confidence surveys that have come out from the likes of ANZ and Westpac is that the, it is now higher than what, uh, what you're normally going to associate with historic norms. But a, long, a lot of that is actually to do with what the RBA has done uh, rather than what the politics have done. Uh, there was a noticeable spike up in May, and that coincided not with anything to do with the, uh, the federal budget or the election. It was purely on that rate cut. Now, that's what's been driving sentiment going forward. They've, uh, they've, the economy's going well, but a lot of that, once again, is not due to the politicians. Now, our 3.1% growth rate, a lot of that is due to the likes of resource exports, primarily to China, which is driving that strength. Um, so whilst they've inherited an economy that's going very well and for more circumstances, given what we've faced over the past few years, uh, no, quite remarkable, I think it's uh, got very less to do with politics and other things uh, no, rather than. Yeah, look, um, and I think probably, um, so we've got, we've got the vote on, on Saturday. Um, the RBA meets the following Tuesday. Um, there's not much talk of, of, of uh, any action from them uh, in that meeting, but uh, later on uh, in the month we'll get the CPI data, uh, the inflation data, and there is a very strong expectation that whoever is in government um, after Saturday will be riding in uh, on a rate cut from the RBA in, in August, or at least one by the end of the year. 
Quite possibly. I would put a caveat on that. The inflation uh, data that we saw in the first quarter was uh, certainly a shockingly low read. There is potential for a bounce back here. And if we, it'll be an interesting conundrum for the RBA board uh, if after the election we're looking at an inflation read that moves us back towards that target range between 2 and 3%. And in fact, if it came in at 2.1, 2.2, that might remove a lot of the case that we saw for the previous rate cut. Nonetheless, I do think that given the subdued activity we've seen over the second quarter, we're more likely to get a reading uh, closer to that very weak first quarter. And if that's the case, we'll almost certainly see a rate cut at that point. David, what's your take on uh, where the RBA will be, um, will be over the next couple of months? I was around 50-50 as well. They're going to cut rates again. Uh, I certainly don't feel like the vibe that they're presenting uh, in their statements and their speeches over the past few months certainly hasn't been of an urgency to go and cut rates any further. Uh, the one thing that's always sort of the back of my mind, though, is the, uh, the inflation forecast that they've gone and provided for the, uh, the forward years uh, are very, very low and not seeing uh, core inflation come back into target within the next two years, which is remarkable. Um, the events in Brexit, although you wouldn't know with the financial market reaction in recent days, uh, it seems to be all very positive now, has certainly gone and swayed the pendulum towards you know, the likelihood of a cut. As you said, the, uh, the, I think it's July 27, I think is when the, uh, the Q2 CPI release will be uh, forthcoming, and that will obviously have a big bearing on it. Um, but also the, uh, the election this weekend uh, will also have a, a large sway. Uh, we'll be talking about the confidence uh, you know, that could be driven by having a mandate uh, from the government to actually go and do something. If we get more of the same as what we've seen in the last, uh, last nine years, uh, that's going to go and add to the case, in my opinion, to cut. Gut feel is, yes, no, 1.5% cash rate will be on the cards and most likely in August. Dave, I've got to agree with you and, and what you've in, implied there, that the RBI is reluctant to cut rates. And I think this is in line with the thinking that we're seeing out of the US Fed. Central bankers are very concerned about the abnormal conditions that we're currently operating on. And both here in Australia and in the US, and I'm sure in other central bank discussions, there are real concerns that we won't be able to return to normal conditions anytime soon. So that desire... Uh, to get back to a more normal environment is very real. Uh, in areas like Japan and Europe now, the case for that uh, sort of movement back towards normal conditions cannot be made. But in the US, here in Australia, it can be made. And if that's the case, then the RBA will do all it can to avoid cutting rates further. Which leads us nicely into um, a look at um, the economic policies that, that both sides um, have put forward. So... I think one valid way of looking at um, what the Labour Party is putting forward, um, you know, the, the, the coalition attacks them for, you know, or you've got 16 extra billion dollars uh, in deficits over the coming four years. Um, I think it's reasonable that, you know, it's a reasonable assessment that 16 billion dollars, when you say it as a number on its own, um, it is, uh, it sounds um, like a huge, huge amount of money. but. The Australian economy is around $1.6 trillion, and, um, you know, that is, we're talking about $4 billion a year out of that, and government spending as a proportion of GDP is a, more than a quarter, I think, at the moment. Um, so, um, you know, what the Labour position is to me is that, and I don't, th I, I think I expressed some frustration in a column a, a few weeks ago that, that Shorten just isn't prepared to call this for what it is and say that we're going to use government's um, spending to help support the economy through what is a pretty fragile time. Unfortunately, the politics here have, uh, sorry, the economics are beholden to the politics because if you're attacking the other side for its trickle down 
uh, approach to stimulating the economy, you can't then argue that in spending government money you'll get some other sort of effect that will somehow stimulate the economy. <laughs> That's right. And look, the, on the other side, we've got... Um We've got this whole um, this whole glide path that Turnbull has proposed for the corporate tax rate. Now, the PM has been trying to drive home the message that um, what people are voting for on Saturday is a tax cut to small business to 27.5% over three years. Right? Um, do you think, Michael, that that is sufficient to get the kind of growth uh, extra leg of growth that the economy is looking for at the moment. Colgo, one of the most disappointing aspects of this uh, campaign has been the willingness of politicians to trash the truth in the interests of their own narrative. This whole idea that small business is somehow more virtuous or more efficient than big business is economic garbage. There's just no other way to put it. Have you ever been asked by a tradie for a cash payment? Have you ever heard of a, a retail shop, a hairdresser or a juice bar operator underpaying their employees persistently over a long period? So virtue doesn't just reside in small business. Small business and big business are the same because they're populated by people. There are very dodgy operators at both ends of the business spectrum and there are plenty of good people at both ends of the spectrum. So this idea that small business is somehow more virtuous than big business is just a nonsense and I'm really disappointed to hear the narratives that are coming out of both parties around this idea that small business is somehow better because the economics of it are compelling. You cannot argue that small business is more efficient than big business. Scale is one of the most important aspects of economic efficiency. By definition, small businesses do not have that. And I think this is the thing. We're, we're talking about trying to make Australia more competitive and its ability to attract investment. But uh, investment from overseas, if you're talking about um, benchmarking the Australian corporate tax rate against the OECD, um, we're, are, we are far, we have fallen far behind um, on that scale. Um, you know, Singapore far ahead of us, and Britain is heading for 18 percent, I think. Um, and th if you're looking to um, attract overseas investment, who is going to say, "Well, you know, the, the small business tax rate is uh, is falling in Australia down to you know by a couple of percentage points"? Maybe it's a good time there to go and start a small business. <laughs> well, if you're looking at starting a hundred million dollar business in Australia, the only people who come down to do it with those who can split it into fifty units, fifty-two million dollar businesses. So, <laughs> and and that's the absurdity of this whole definition. The other thing I'd, I'd point out is a complex tax system is a real disservice to the economy. The flatter the tax system, the more even the tax rates across all big business, small business, individuals, the flatter those rates are, the closest they are together, the more efficient our economy. Because there's no incentive to put in place complex structures, spend a lot of money on consultants and accountants to make sure that you're minimising your tax when no matter what sort of entity you are, you pay the same tax. Certainly. Look, I, I, and I look at the Irish experience, you know, where I'm from. Uh, I was a teenager when they cut the corporate tax rate there, um, basically overnight to an incredibly low 10%. And over the following decade, um, now we know that there was a massive implosion with a housing bubble um, <laughs> um, associated with the GFC, but over the following decade, the country transformed. But it wasn't, obviously, look, it was nothing to do with small businesses. It was giant businesses, GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer, Intel, Microsoft, Sun Microsystems, I think, who are now bust. But now you've still got 
Um, Apple is setting up a huge data center there. Uh, Facebook is setting up. Uh, Facebook has a big operation, European headquarters in Dublin. Google the same. Um, uh, so, you, you doing something. You need to do. Uh, for me, the lesson from that is you need to do something dramatic. Um, and saying 25%, getting the corporate tax rate down by five percentage points um, over a period of 10 years, to your point, Michael, um, bit complex, a bit complex, involves going through two elections at least, um, and, uh, you know, still doesn't give you, maybe, you know, other, other countries may be racing to push down their um, corporate tax rates further um, over that period anyway. No, it's a woefully timid approach. At least it's in the right direction. At least they're not looking at lifting the corporate tax rate. So you know, credit where it's due, but seriously, it's woefully timid. We, we really need a much more dramatic approach. And, and we talked at the top of the podcast about the need for reform in the Australian economy. And I'm sure both sides are very uh, wary of the idea that they'll be facing a hostile Senate. And that's, I think, why they're being so soft with their reform agendas. We need some courage. Uh, we need some bold vision. And we need somebody who can tell the story of why this is so important. It clearly does work. We've seen from Singapore in the 60s to Ireland in the 90s, we see it again and again. Those countries that lower their barriers, flatten their tax rates, and create an easy and open environment for businesses to operate in benefit enormously. I have a theory on this, um, just, you know, survey everyone, but uh, Turnbull has been very cautious since the start of the year um, to put in place the different um, pieces that he needed to go to this election in the way that he's done it. Um, so at the end of March, I think it emerged that this Ju July 2 um, timeline was on, the budget might be brought forward. Um, but it, those reports came out, I think, the end of March, but it did emerge at the time that uh, they'd been talking about it since January. The plan sort of came together in January. They got the double dissolution trigger by trying to get the AB, uh, ABCC legislation up in the Senate, um, fell over, got the trigger, budget early, frame it as an economic plan, go for a grinding two-month um, election uh, campaign, uh, and along the way put in place the Senate voting reforms so that in the hope that maybe the Senate might not be as complex. This is just my theory, and I think what we might see in terms of ambition for a reform agenda, because if there's one thing that Malcolm Turnbull is, it's ambitious. He's got big ideas. You know, he, this guy is not a shrinking violet. Um, and I think when he, uh, if he is uh, re-elected, um, which is looking like the case, um, that over the following six months then, and we might start to see a bit of a different picture emerge in terms of the reform agenda. Absolutely. In fact, in Australia, I think it's refreshing that we have a Prime Minister we know is not in it for the money and doesn't care what his uh, post-politics career looks like. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull could retire any time he wanted to. And I think that's actually a positive. I hope that that gives him the courage to be bold if he does get a Senate that's friendly. It's a very interesting election. The received wisdom is that even with the reforms to Senate voting, we're still likely to have a hung parliament. I'm not convinced that that's the case. I'll, I'll watch to see how this plays out. But these are very important reforms. And as we know from um, economics and finance, the, uh, what we think should happen and, and the assumption that people act, will act in their best interests doesn't always pan out. So I think the Senate... Are you suggesting voters are not rational? 
<laughs> I'm, I'm suggesting that some people put a cross or a mark on the paper without even opening their eyes. We know that happens. We know that they... I, I've once acted as a scrutineer and the messages that some people write on their ballot papers are fascinating. They're full of vitriol in many cases and they're completely useless. And I urge everyone in Australia to please think about what you're doing in the Senate. I don't care which party gets executive, well I do, but frankly either party getting executive control will be better than any other result. Um, I want to just quickly look at, for, for some Australians, um, there, there, are, there is a different economic context um, for uh, what is happening on, on Saturday, depending on where you live in the country. If you look at um, the East Coast, Dave, um, uh, things have been going pretty well, unemployment rates low, um, but it's, that's not the case in, in other parts of the country, right? Well, yeah, the two-speed economy. Now, it's, uh, it's gone from uh, being WA in, uh, in Northern Territory in South Australia and parts of Queensland driving the economy to uh, a complete uh, 360 in that respect. So East Coast Australia, southeast uh, corner of the country in particular, is, uh, is doing very well, which really isn't that surprising. It's dominated by services. You've had the Australian dollar going uh, fall 30% or so. Uh, interest rates are at, uh, at record low levels, uh, and the housing market is going nuts, uh, particularly in Sydney. It's uh, making people feel a lot more confident about themselves. Uh, it's, it's something that's going to probably continue no matter what happens on Saturday. Uh, but you're right, there's going to be a, an impact how people are going to perceive, say, like in South Australia. And uh, obviously things, you know, you look at what the, uh, the economic data has been there, highest unemployment rate in the country, uh, economic growth is not great. Uh, you could probably go and say a lot of the same about the WA as well. So perhaps they're looking for a change up to actually go and, and, and look at something for them. And that's where you know, we talk about parties like you know, Nick Xenophon's party as well. Uh, potentially looks like it could go and, uh, and, uh, and grab a few seats in the Senate. If that happens, obviously that's going to probably lead to another outcome that we've seen in the past, uh, past parliament, which is going to be Senate being controlled by the minor parties. And I have family in South Australia, um, and in fact quite a few members in various parts of it, um, some in Christopher Pines electorates, some in the central electorates. Uh, they're concerned. They're very concerned. What they're hearing uh, from their friends, from their neighbours, uh, suggests that there's a wholeness bolus rejection of the two-party system, and that is bad news for Australian democracy. Yeah, I think, I think it is interesting. It's, you know, the one place where um, you see this... Uh, rampant populism, um, which we've seen in, in, in other um, countries overseas, um, there's no need to name them. only place where it has really flared up has been the place where there is the highest rate of unemployment. The irony of this is that the populists are the biggest liars in the game and they're getting their power from telling the people that the other guys are liars. It's disgraceful. And they don't need to keep promises um, because they're not going to be in government. Although, you know, looking at a situation where Nick Xenophon, who's, I have to say, um, his stance on gambling, uh, he is probably one of the only people who is jumping up and down about this appalling problem that we have in, in Australia with um, huge levels of, I think we're the highest in the world um, in terms of per capita spending on, on gambling, and it's because of pokies. And Xenophon's the only person who's sort of um, been willing to sort of jump up and down and make a lot of noise about the scourge of, of pokies and, and all that kind of stuff. But for the rest of his uh, suite of policies, he's a protectionist, uh, he's a populist, you know, and this guy could end up um, being a kingmaker in, in the next parliament. 
Well, he certainly could, although I would argue that uh, in economic terms, gambling is actually a tax on innumeracy and ill discipline. So, you know, there might be some who'd argue that's not such a bad thing. However, one of the things we also know from behavioural finance is that fairness is a big part of the way people act. And where people perceive that things are unfair, and many people would argue that the way pokies take money from the poorest in our society is very unfair, where you get that sort of thing, you're likely to get political support. So... Call me a cynic. I think that this is a form of populism as well. Um, I'm not reflecting on Mr Xenophon's personal integrity, but I do think those appeals to this uh, fairness are very carefully calculated political moves. That doesn't necessarily mean it would be a bad thing if he were elected. One of the things that a lot of investment bank economists, uh, very learned economists, and the Productivity Commission um, goes on uh, a lot about in regards to... um, ensuring the, um, a, a strong future for, for Australia's economy is probably one of the dullest topics in all of economics and markets, and that is productivity. Um, Michael, you have some uh, interesting views on, on, on uh, where we are now and how we've got to this point um, with the softer levels of productivity um, that we're seeing in, in the economy. Looking at the Australian economy in the longer term, it's pretty clear the problems that we have now have their roots in the solution to the previous greatest problem we faced, and that was inflation. In the 90s, we managed to break the nexus between prices and wages. Previous to that, wages were automatically tied to prices. When prices went up, wages followed, and when wages went up, businesses had to put prices up, and we had this uh, disvirtuous cycle of inflation that that was destroying the economy, uh, particularly noticeable in the 70s, but a problem all the way through the 80s. So the solution to that was to break that relationship between prices and wages, and the accords brought in by the Labor governments of the early 90s were instrumental in changing the face of the Australian economy for the better. Now, the beauty of it was they linked wages to productivity growth. And when we went through the tech boom of the late 90s and even after the tech wreck on the markets, the productivity gains from technology continued and that meant wages could rise without a huge growth in the overall economy because earnings are rising because of that better productivity coming through from technology. A lot of those benefits seem to have been banked. And as productivity has now pulled back, so have wages. And that uh, lack of growth in wages is one of the key reasons that a lot of people feel we we have a less fair society and one of the reasons that populism amongst politics is on the rise. And I suppose one of the issues with with stimulating or, or adding productivity into the economy is at a policy level, the classic response um, from government would be infrastructure spending. Um, you know, build um, bigger ports, build um, new airports. We're getting one in Sydney, um, but build, you know, um, more roads, um, you know, uh, and just really ra- more rail and ramp up that productivity, get things moving between point A and point B um, a lot more quickly. Um, but we're not at a point now, um, given the fiscal uh, uh, situation that we that we found ourselves in, um, because possibly because of some of the policy paralysis, uh, inability of the Abbott government in particular to, to cut spending to uh, as it had proposed, um, but we're in this situation where infra- huge amounts of infrastructure spending are um, probably not fiscally responsible um, or politically palatable. 
Well, that is the big problem because for traders like Scuddy and I, the, the low, current low interest rate environment if you know, has a slavering to get our hands on the, on the levers of government because I know I would be pumping out 30-year bonds at current levels, get them away at 4% and, let, and then pay off the short-term debt and do some stimulus at the same time. 4% in the long term is going to prove to be a very cheap rate to borrow funds at over 30 years. I guarantee you that. And yet, you're right, it's the politics of it that's causing the real problem. I do agree. I think the better thing to do right now in this low-growth environment would actually be to increase borrowing. Um, you know, the idea that balanced budgets and no debt is always a virtue is an economic nonsense. You borrow when times are tough, you stimulate your economy, and when the good times come, you pay it off. And I guess to some extent we're paying for the rectitude of governments that during boom times didn't put enough away. Our future fund is a good start, but we could have done a lot more to bank the benefits of the commodity boom when it was there. Of course, it's all a bit too late to be saying that now. Well, that's right. And, you know, they tried. Um, Kevin Rudd had a crack at the, um, the, the mining tax. Um, he was probably his un very significant part of his, of his undoing. Um, and, you know, then the Gillard and Swan put forward the, the replacement for it, the MR, MRRT, which I think in its first year collected a grand sum total of zero dollars from, from the big miners. Like the, the time you sell these ideas is when there's not a boom. That's why it's so important for governments to get the structure right. Had they put in place the super profits tax when there wasn't a commodity boom, it would have been waved through. The companies wouldn't have objected themselves. They would have, they would have looked forward to a commodity boom with the, with the government. The problem was they waited too long, the politics of it became too complicated, and, of course, by the time they finally got something in place, the cycle had already turned. We might be good for the next 20-year cycle, but uh, it's not going to do us any good now. So I suppose, for, for me, part of what this points to is uh, the importance of competence in government. Right? So... Um, policy that putting forward policy that works hand in hand with a political strategy um, through the parliament um, that will ensure that um, that the legislation gets passed and the, that the reforms can get up. So, um, if we're looking at it from a competence point of perspective, uh, com competence point of view. Um, I think uh, that makes it a really interesting uh, question for, um, for what happens on Saturday. Absolutely, and, and this is a micro, in microcosm the problem of the uh, emerged world, and that is the lack of confidence in politicians generally. Um, there are good reasons for that, but uh, some truth-telling from politicians would go a long way, and anything that builds confidence amongst those who aren't that engaged with the political cycle and aren't that engaged with the business cycle would in the long run be a very good thing. You know, We used to understand that um, you know, honesty uh, was a virtue that had its own rewards. Well, in politics, the rewards for honesty, well, you actually get penalised in the short term, but the long-term rewards are you get the support of the people. You get to tell the story, and it's believed. And the problem, of course, now, it, it looks like no matter what story is told, there's a lot of disbelief. The, the electorate thinks all politicians are liars, and so trust is down, and when trust is down, it's very hard to build confidence. Scott Morrison did have a crack at this earlier in the year. Um, he, uh, I think, uh, in a speech at the National Press Club, went through... Um, a whole bunch of factors that were um, that meant that that show that Australia is at the eye of a, a bit of a global economic uh, storm, if you like, um, with the uh, slowdown in China, 
um, and um, the uncertainty in a whole range of um, uh, markets. Uh, that's as a result of that, and also the the the, the anemic growth, even though it is growth, but it's, it's fairly anemic growth that we're seeing in the United States. Um, and Australia is getting sort of, the, the boat is being rocked a bit on that. Now, to my mind, Scott Morrison made an attempt to really uh, get ahead of that conversation and explain it to people, but um, it just never seemed to really get up and uh, really engage people. The problem was it sounded like blame shifting. Well, everything he said was true, but because he was saying it when things were going badly... The response from the electorate that already doesn't trust him is it's you're just trying to shift the blame. What we need is a politician who, when things are going really well, says, hey, guys, we did our bit, but we've got to give credit here, here, here and here. And, by the way, international conditions also played a big part in the good things that you're seeing you know, in your pocket and uh, down at, you know, in your club. So um, that's the problem. They tell the truth when it suits and they don't tell the truth when it could probably help. One of the um, other big policy differences has been uh, negative gearing. Um, and this is, you know, Labor um, is proposing grandfathering uh, any existing uh, negative gearing, but then basically removing it from the middle of next year. Uh, this is an economic policy that could potentially have a very significant impact. David, what is your take on that? First and foremost, I don't think it's going to go and smash house prices. I just want to put that on the record. Presuming that Labor Did you say was. say that as a homeowner, David? <laughs> Yes. Um, <laughs> in terms of uh, what I think of the policy, it's um, let's presume that Labor goes and gets in power and this policy gets implemented. The biggest concern I'd have is the arrangements won't be grandfathered until July 1st next year. Um, we've already seen that uh, house prices have bucked expectations again this year, particularly in Sydney and to a lesser degree Melbourne, two, two usual suspects there when it comes to uh, outrageous house price gains. Just what factor that would do to go and encourage people to go and bring forward demand on top of what's already there just to go and beat the tax changes. Uh, I think it would be very concerning, obviously, if that was to occur, I think that APRA would have to go and, and actually look to really ramp up their, uh, their level of uh, scrutiny over what the lenders are doing. Uh, they've got their 10% uh, no, soft target at the moment that they're, that they're keeping the other uh, lenders to. But uh, no, if there's that big influx of demand that's pulled forward, then I really wonder what potentially could do to the housing market um, particularly, like when you look at the Sydney, particularly in Sydney housing market. I'm sorry to be uh, to all the listeners out there about being so Sydney centric, but you look at the uh, the rental yields for Sydney property now, rental properties, and they're akin to what you'd get with a term deposit rate. Uh, very different kind of products, but uh, to me, to be investing in this kind of market after the gains we've seen already, it it, it sends to tells me that uh, there's going to be more about. Uh, speculation of further price increases that it's driving this now rather than actually like you know, a fundamental return on the investment. So it's just it's very interesting to see what we're going to plan out if Labor gets in. Uh, I think that what happens in the Sydney housing market is so important for the rest of the country and the ramifications that it could go and cause in the rest of the economy are huge and there's no uh, dismissing that. If there was to be a problem in the Sydney property market, I'm not saying that at the moment, then certainly look, it would create a lot of issues for the Australian economy as a whole. I think one of the problems with any abolition of negative gearing is it's offensive to a basic economic principle, and that is that we tax profits, not revenues. Right? So where you have a profit in an investment or in a business, that's taxable, and you're allowed to deduct your expenses. Interest payments are expenses. So abolishing negative gearing offends an economic principle and creates further 
disruption in the economy or further unevenness in the economy that goes back to that argument with that discussion we're having earlier about complexity and structuring and all that sort of things. If you change negative gearing only as it applies to homes, or only as it applies to new homes, or only as it applies to existing homes, you introduce another level of complexity, more expense, more red tape. And that's, that's the main problem I have with this. This is a basic economic principle. I think also, too, by the way, um, one of the most uh, heavy uh, utilisers of negative gearing are small businesses. And uh, I'd just like to tie those two things together. Like tradies. You know, we had fake tradie, which for me was one of the moments of the campaign. <laughs> what a great picture. Yeah, he was, he was fantastic. Andrew McRae, who turned out to be a real tradie. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, just going to quickly wrap up. The, uh, what we're looking for uh, on Saturday is that basically the coalition could lose um, up to 13 seats. Um, so uh, the coalition's going in with notional 89 seats after some redistributions. Um, Labour has uh, 57. 76 gives you a working majority. Um, so Labour needs to gain 19. Uh, the swing re um, required in that is pretty big at 4%. So, um, you know, governments always get a little bit of a kick. Uh, so, you know, I think my projection on this would be that you might see a 1% uh, swing against the government, which would re result in them losing around about seven seats, I think. Um, so the seats that I will be um, watching uh, carefully, and Patterson in New South Wales, where Bob Baldwin uh, is is retiring, um, and I think if you look at um, in in New South Wales, if uh, the Libs are holding on to uh, seats like Reid and MacArthur um, and uh, and Page. Uh, and Lindsay, particularly in Monaro, the classic, uh, the classic bellwether. If they're holding on to those seats, uh, then uh, even just a handful of those, then it looks like um, Labor's not going to be able to get over the line. One of the ones I'll be watching very closely is New England, where Barnaby Joyce takes on Tony Windsor. Now, it's not just personal interest, although I am interested to see how this stash between two old white men goes, but they're both populist by nature. Right. So we will get a true indication of what is admittedly a conservative electorate really thinks about the two-party preferred system. And I think that might be one of the most important outcomes of this election. Are people swinging away from the two-party preferred system? That would be a big concern. I think the service that you guys have done in putting on this podcast today is to point out that the swing will not be uniform. It's, in fact, more likely to be much more varied than it has in the past because of that unevenness across the Australian economy. So once again, I turn to the bookmakers. They've at this stage got the coalition as a 80% chance of electing the Prime Minister. The consensus uh, across the different betting sites appears to be a majority of 7 to 10, so that represents some slippage for the coalition. But also, regrettably they uh, rate the chances of a hung parliament at about 66%. Uh, sorry, a hung Senate at about 66%. So unfortunately, at this stage, it looks like more of the same. Yeah, and th th that would involve um, some kind of arrangement, uh, the government having to strike some kind of arrangement uh, um, with crossbenches uh, in order to get its legislation through. We're going to wrap it up there. You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, I'm Paul Colgan. I've been here this week with uh, Michael McCarthy, who's the Chief Market Strategist at uh, CMC Markets here in Sydney. Michael, thank you for coming on the show. Pleasure. It's been great, guys. And Scotty, thank you very much for, for joining us again this week. Cheers, Colgan. No, thanks, Mike. It was a great chat. You can find us on iTunes. We're on the web at uh, businessinsider.com.au. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. And you can find us all individually on Twitter, too. 
Um, vote early, vote often, uh, and enjoy your sausage roll, and we'll talk to you next week. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.